Welcome to the second issue of our JNNP podcast. We're going to cover two manuscripts on this podcast. The first is covering epilepsy and driving laws in the United Kingdom, and the second will look at the effects of frontotemporal dementia and Alzheimer's disease. So we might kick off with our first discussion with Rhys Thomas. I'm extremely pleased to introduce what is the editor's choice for the February issue of JNNP. And this manuscript covers awake seizures after pure sleep-related epilepsy, a systematic review and implications for driving law. I'm extremely pleased to have the lead author here, Dr. Rhys Thomas from the Wales Epilepsy Research Network. Good evening, Rhys. Good morning. How are you? Very well. Perhaps you could start by giving us a background to the study itself and what made you actually undertake this study? The supervising author to this paper, Professor Phil Smith, sits on the uh, nervous disorder panel for the DVLA here in the UK and is part of the panel which both reviews the driving law and uh, cases that are put in front of it. Uh, he was asked to just review the evidence underpinning some of the, some of the laws that exist in the UK. And in doing so, he asked us to investigate the rules for uh, sleep-related or nocturnal seizures because it appeared that it was based purely on a paper from 1974, and that was the last time it had been looked at in the UK. From that, we attempted to do a meta-analysis, realised the uh, data was not strong, and instead performed a systematic review of the five or six papers that um, really could tell us something about the risk of a... Uh, an awake seizure in the next year if you have mostly sleep-related seizures. Perhaps you could just sort of outline some of the key findings then from your analysis. Yeah, certainly. I think the uh, most important thing is that uh, even if a law is on the statute books, that um, there may not be a great deal of evidence underpinning it. So we need to go back and uh, really scrutinize things even if they are set in stone. Uh, so there's not a great deal of evidence underpinning the rules for sleep-related seizures in uh, driving law. <clears throat> From the information that we did find, um, it would appear that people remain at risk of awake seizures many years after diagnosis, but being on medication and staying on a medi medication would reduce that risk down to the point where most people probably wouldn't need a longer exclusion period than the initial exclusion after a first seizure. And, and in, a, in addition to that, if people have high seizure frequency, obviously they'll have more difficulty controlling their seizures. And people should be cancelled not to come off uh, medication suddenly because that was also associated with uh, a high relapse rate. There's a caveat associated with all of this because the most informative paper excludes people with focal epilepsy. And so um, you know, it's one of the, the problems with all this evidence is that we're really looking at large studies of people's practice and there are no bespoke papers that have been set out to try and answer questions to inform driving law. So do you think we can reach any sort of practical implications from your study? So for instance, let's say you're a neurologist faced with a patient who has had pure sleep-related epilepsy and is coming yeah. to you to talk about driving. What, um, what guidance do you think you, the neurologist should offer the patients? Uh, initially, you can start by saying most people with sleep-related events actually uh, do very well with medication. And certainly if driving is an issue, I think uh, you should have a, a conversation about using anti-epileptics early and they might well need to continue on them even if they become seizure-free. And I think from a driving law point of view, it would seem very likely that a year's exclusion, a year's ineligibility would be uh, sufficient for them to reach an acceptable risk to drive. 
And in terms of the, the pure sleep-related epilepsy itself, it, it seems to have a, a long history and you've provided some historical background going back through from Hippocrates. I have known many persons in sleep groaning and crying out, some in a state of suffocation, some jumping up and fleeing out of doors, and deprived of their reason until they awaken, and afterward becoming quiet and rational as before, although they be pale and weak. And this will happen not once, but frequently. Uh, and including the great writings of, of Gowers. Could you just sort of elaborate on that as well? It always seems a little romantic to start um, with both Hippocrates and Gowers, but I think it was also came out of frustration with us in that at the turn of the century, neurologists in the UK and in, America, in the States were particularly good at observing the natural frequency of seizures and categorizing people into perhaps events in early sleep, mid-sleep, uh, last third of sleep. And actually, certainly since then, we've come no closer in knowing really what the natural history of sleep-related epilepsy is, and certainly what the natural history of uh, treated sleep-related epilepsy is. And uh, we found that to be a particular challenge when trying to come up with sensible recommendations here. It's uh, embarrassing to say I don't think many people have improved on the original descriptions that were done in an era before EEG and uh, MRI scans. It's certainly becoming a major problem in terms of epilepsy in a general sense and driving, and you've outlined some of the greater risk groups. Yeah. But going back to one of your early points um, about the study being derived from the Driver and Vehicle Licensing Agency, or the DVLA, mm -hmm. most countries have, have equivalents, and it's always an ongoing issue in terms of neurologists interacting with regulatory authorities, particularly bearing in mind their relationship with their own patients. Do you anticipate any follow-on with, say, the licensing authorities in the United Kingdom? Yes, absolutely. The Department of Transport does have a, a limited budget for commissioning research, and uh, in the context of people who have accidents behind the wheel, perhaps neurology is relatively small beer. That said, we're working with them to try and commission prospective collection of evidence from both the medical review licenses that the DVLA offers, and also trying to work with the motor insurers to try and see if we can collect information about accidents. Do you think that epilepsy patients are being unfairly scrutinised by licensing authorities in relation to driving? Historically, there was always that feeling in the UK. I think I'm right in saying that um, Barbara Castle was the Minister for Transport at one stage when her car was hit by somebody who had had a seizure at the wheel. And uh, from that point onwards, people with epilepsy felt as if they were unfairly penalised. There was also the case of somebody whose car uh, hit and killed a member of the, uh, the guards outside Buckingham Palace, and that was thought to be uh, secondary to a seizure at the wheel. And I think these dramatic anecdotes uh, associated with the um, misunderstanding and stigma surrounded by epilepsy makes it quite easy to unfairly penalise people with epilepsy. And in some ways, I don't think that support groups are as um, vocal as perhaps other um, disease-specific support groups outside of neurology for campaigning for the relaxation of driving law. So, so thanks, Rhys, for that uh, wonderful summary of your manuscript, which has been chosen as the editor's choice for the February issue of the JNNP. And now I'll hand over to Duncan Jarvis from BMA House, who's going to talk to Howard Rosen from the University of California and the Department of Neurology at San Francisco, who's going to cover his manuscript standardized measurement of self-awareness deficits in frontotemporal dementia and Alzheimer's disease. 
And this manuscript has been chosen in the February issue as the patient's choice. So, Harry, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. So, perhaps for a start, you could give us a general overview of the problem, this lack of insight in dementia. Okay. Um, So, uh, the reason we did this study is because lack of insight in dementia is really a very common problem. Almost every patient who we see who has dementia at some point in their illness is unaware of the degree of the problem. Sometimes patients are completely unaware of the problem and think everything is fine. Sometimes they have shallow awareness. Sometimes they have more um, complete, well, more full awareness, but it's never complete. Mm. And uh, it varies from patient to patient. Some patients, uh, even early in the illness, are very unaware of the, of the problems they have and, in particular, the consequences of the problem. And other patients uh, the early on are quite aware, but as the problem worsens, they're not aware of that worsening. So it's, it's ubiquitous, but it's also vari- variable in terms of when it occurs and how severe it is. Okay. We chose two groups of patients uh, to study who really uh, um, exemplify the, the differences across different people. So we studied patients with Alzheimer's disease who uh, you know, are represent a very common form of dementia, mm-hmm. and they often have decreased awareness, as I said, of their uh, cognitive trouble. And we chose patients with frontotemporal dementia, and that's another disorder which, as the name implies, affects the frontal lobes a lot. And uh, we think that the frontal lobes are very important for monitoring oneself and controlling one's actions. And so uh, as a consequence of the fact that the frontal lobe is so severely affected, these patients with frontal temporal dementia have particularly poor insight into their condition. When you say insight, you mean understanding of what their condition means? Well, actually, it's complicated. So that's um, a good question, and it really goes to the heart of one of the issues, what we mean by insight. Uh, I think in, in some cases, lack of insight really means not even knowing what the problem is, not, rem- not uh, knowing that your family worries about you, not realizing that you're making mistakes or doing things differently. In other cases, you're, you're sort of aware of the facts. Yes, I did this. Yes, I made this mistake. Yes, I lost my job. But you interpret it in a very different way than your family would or presumably than you would have 10 years before. Sure. And that's really what we think is one of the unique things about frontotemporal dementia, you know, in Alzheimer's disease, it's pretty easy to understand why patients might be unaware of the problem because every time some event happens that reveals their problems, they might forget about it a few weeks later or days later or hours later. So all these events don't add up in their mind because they keep being forgotten. In frontotemporal dementia, they often have quite good memory and they can recite the concerns of their family, and they can say, yeah, you told me I have this disorder, Dr. Rosen, Uh, but they they still can't add it up uh, and come to the conclusion that we've come to and that their families come to, that they have a problem. So if we could go on then to, to ask, what were you looking for in your research? We don't even really have a great way of measuring this phenomenon because it can be defined in different ways. And one of the problems is, is in the past we've defined it by, uh, say, asking a, a caregiver or a person who knows the person well uh, about their problems, how good are they at this, how much problem are they having at that, um, 
and then we ask the patient the same questions, and uh, we have them. We would have them give some kind of score, and then we would take the discrepancy between two, the two scores, and that is a definition of the insight. Yeah. But um, of course, if a caregiver is very distressed about the problem, they might exaggerate the problem a bit. Or if their own cognition is a little off, I mean, you often have a, a caregiver who has their own medical problems. Mm-hmm. They may not be as accurate as we'd like. So it would be nice to have a way that doesn't necessarily um, depend on the caregiver and also is, is quantifiable in a way that we like to quantify things in science and in medicine. So the real goal of this particular study was to try to um, find a new way to measure this phenomenon. Basically, we do some psychological testing, and then we compare what the patient, their, what their opinion is about their uh, performance, we compare it to their actual performance. And we look at that discrepancy, and then we leave the caregiver out of it. So how does more accurately being able to measure someone's lack of insight change the way that management might work? So lack of insight has a lot of everyday implications for patients. Uh, they might, uh, patients with poor insight often will uh, engage in activities that they're really not able to handle as well as they could before. Good examples are driving or financial management. So if we can measure insight more accurately, we can try to choose activities that a patient can or can't engage in and figure out which patients really are going to be aware of how well they're doing at certain things and which patients won't be. And we can give them more advice and the family more advice on predicting when a patient is going to engage in activities that they shouldn't. Will this have any effect on the treatment of dementia? Not immediately. I would say it it could have um, uh, implications for treatment uh, maybe in the not-too-distant future in two ways. Uh, one thing is that, um, is that uh, whenever we develop new medicines, we have to verify whether the med- medicines are working by measuring function. And uh, often we think about memory and, and uh, uh, concentrating and focusing and attention. Those are functions that are often the, the target of, of uh, drug treatments. Those things should improve or not worsen over time. Being able to measure insight well makes insight or self-awareness another measure that can be put to the test in these drug studies. So um, I think, uh, and I don't think that was the case before that we had as, uh, as nice a measure as this to be able to follow along over time whether insight is improving or worsening. So that's one way that it can have implications for treatment is that it can help us develop new drugs um, and keep insight as one of the things that we measure uh, to determine the effect of the drug. The second way that it can affect treatment is, um, is that uh, uh, understanding Uh, why patients have poor insight and which patients have poor insight might help us develop behavioral management, interventions, ways to improve people's insight. There's a whole uh, literature on a subject called metacognition, which is, you know, awareness of our own thoughts and and our own thinking abilities. And many of those researchers are very interested in how to improve people's uh, uh, monitoring of themselves and control of their own thinking. Um, to make our thoughts more efficient and make, have ourselves make less errors. 
So if any of that work, um, uh, um, so much of that work could theoretically inform behavioral management in uh, patients with poor insight. So as you said, this is going to help in the future. Um, is there any more future research that you're doing into it? Yeah, um, I, I think we're moving forward along two lines of research. One is trying to link these problems with insight to specific regions of the brain. Uh, because as neuroscience advances, uh, it, it, we learn more and more about each area of the brain and what functions it has. And if we can link this problem, lack of insight, to specific areas of the brain, then we can uh, uh, look at the research on those areas in the brain and learn more about why people have poor insight. Mm -hmm. Another thing we're doing is trying to do uh, uh, cognitive testing, various thinking tasks to try to pin down exactly where the problem is in insight. Which patients is it really them forgetting the events that should have informed them that they have a problem? Uh, which patients is other areas of the brain? Um, for instance, I think emotion plays an important role in insight. You may be aware of errors and other kinds of problems, but if you don't have the emotional alarm signals in your brain that tell you that this is an important problem, you'll ignore it and not give it the, the, the credence that it's due. So we're trying to really uh, um, uh, understand the components of poor insight. And then lastly, I, I think we're starting to think about whether there's anything we can do to change people's uh, insight, to actually uh, encourage them to, to do more self-monitoring. In, in all of these areas, we're still at the relatively early stages, but that last one, I think, would be the, the best outcome of this, if we can, uh, you know, shift the needle a little bit on this. Great. Howie, thanks for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Howard, and thanks, Duncan, for that excellent review of, of your manuscript chosen as the patient's choice for the JNNP February issue. And thank you to all listeners for tuning into this podcast. This is a, a growing development for JNNP, and we look forward to further developments over coming months.